the choir comes down. We've been on Communion Sundays each month uh, reflecting on the seven sayings of Christ on the cross and today we come to this fourth saying of Christ on the cross so we might get to spring before we finish these. Uh, look forward to uh, each month reflecting on these because they are very powerful and encouraging to us. And uh, today, as A.W. Pink says... These are words of startling import. The crucifixion of the Lord of glory was the most extraordinary event that has ever happened on earth. And this cry of the suffering one was the most startling utterance of that appalling scene. So we come to a a very uh, solemn moment as Christ is hanging on the cross and as he says several different things, uh, this Uh, This is the most woeful thing that he says. Woeful in his own soul, not woeful because of the content of what he's saying. But let us look at, at Mark 15, verse 33. But first let us pray. Father, we do pray that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would open our eyes and our hearts and that you would help us to see clearly what your word is saying to us today. Give me words to say, Lord. Pray that you would guide and direct me as I seek to open up this passage. And may it be an encouragement to all of our hearts today to turn to you with a deeper faith and a deeper repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This holiday season, I have, of course, watched some football games like many of you probably have. And uh, I noticed uh, often when watching football that when there's a, a, a personal foul, some, some penalty that gets called between players fighting, it, it's usually the second guy that gets caught. You know, one guy will do something nasty to the other opposing player, and the opposing player retaliates, and that's, of course, when the referees are looking, and so the second guy gets caught. And sometimes they'll throw flags on both of them, uh, both of the people fighting or doing whatever wrong they're doing, And uh, the referees will say they're offsetting penalties. And so the whole play starts over again. You you get a a do-over, which is kind of ridiculous uh, because it doesn't actually solve the problem that they were having to begin with. But do-overs. I remember as a child, and I probably told you this uh, before, but in my backyard we had a a nice uh, long, long fence that wrapped around. It was just perfect for a baseball stadium. Third base was a pecan tree. And, of course, uh, that was where the fence was the shortest, so we always would try to hit it that way so we could knock a home run. And, uh, you know, often the ball would go over the pecan tree, so it was very difficult to 
tell if it was actually a home run or not. Of course, if you were hitting the ball, it was, a, it was certainly a home run. If you were in the field, it was certainly not a home run. It was a foul ball. And, of course, arguments ensued, and, and, a, and, and later we would say, okay, we'll just do it over. A do-over. You know, when God created the world and man fell into sin, he could have done a do-over. He could have scrapped the whole thing and started over. He's God, after all, and he can do what he wants to do. But he didn't do that. He sent his only son into the world to redeem mankind. Uh, he, he continued to pursue us. And that's what Christmas, of course, was all about. God becoming human. God taking on human flesh and coming to us and through his life and his death and his resurrection providing salvation for all those who turn to him. He pursues us. He came after us not wanting to see us perish, but offering us eternal life. And that's what we rejoice in today as we think about these words of Christ on the cross, these solemn words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It shows us here the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. You know, we live in pretty immoral times, and, and uh, of course, We've all become desensitized to the immorality that we have all around us, maybe even in our own lives. We think about, you know, uh, in, in earlier times in our, in our lives when you know, the things were taboo that are openly celebrated today. Uh, many things, many, many things. Times have certainly changed. But we see here when we see Christ, the one who is suffering on the cross, and what he suffered there, we see the seriousness of sin because it is sin that put him on the cross. Our sin that put him on the cross. First of all, who suffered? We, we didn't continue to read on, but at the end of the passage, a Roman centurion uh, says, surely this was the Son of God. He, he this Gentile who has no connection, uh, he gets it. In some certain way, he recognizes somehow that Jesus is the Son of God after he sees the suffering and all that Jesus says there on the cross and all that's going on around him. Roman centurion tells us that, that this wasn't any random person. It wasn't just like those other two criminals that hung with Christ. It was God himself in human flesh come down from his throne in heaven who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant to serve us by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, a death that he died on the cross, a death that he died in response to the Father's uh, will that he go and become a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now, we must consider that being the Son of God, he was the only person who ever walked on the face of the earth who did not deserve to suffer and die on the cross. Every one of us are sinners. We have a sin nature and we have sinned, whether it be big sins or minuscule sins in our judgment. Not one of us is perfect, but Jesus was. He was utterly perfect. 
And here we see him where we should be. But he was there for us in our place, hanging on the cross, the very Son of God. So it's amazing that God himself would put him in that position because of our sin. Now, what did he suffer on the cross? Obviously, crucifixion was a horrible, torturous way to die. Certainly, Jesus was suffering physical pain as he hung there on the cross, struggling to breathe with nails through his, his hands and feet and being stuck in the side with a sword and having already been beaten and, and shredded with the, the 39 lashes and so forth and so on. And we see here that he is offered in a few verses before wine mixed with myrrh. It was kind of a, a medicine Wine mixed with myrrh had narcotic effects and it was offered to those who were hanging on the cross to alleviate their suffering. But Jesus did not take it because he wanted to keep his mind clear for his last great fight. So yes, he on the cross experienced excruciating uh, suffering, excruciating physical pain, but there's something... Something more horrific going on here than just his physical suffering. Something that really is unfathomable to our human minds to its fullest degree. Isaiah described it in this manner in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So he was smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on and says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So Christ was the offering for our guilt. He was the one who suffered for our sin. And not just for one person's sin, but for the sins of all his people. We look at verse 33, it tells us that darkness came and it tells us that the darkness was from the sixth hour. Uh, and the sixth hour in Hebrew terms is 12 o'clock noon. So when the sun was at its apex, darkness descended uh, upon all of creation in that area. Well, darkness here is uh, a symbol of God's judgment being poured out upon the Son of God in Isaiah he speaks of, of that metaphor, that picture. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Talking about the day of judgment. Well, when Christ hung on the cross, he was receiving our judgment as he hung there. And as he cried out, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now when he says, my God, uh, it's an amazing fact that Jesus is calling God, my God. It's an, an address of intimacy as he is experiencing being, as Paul says in Corinthians, made sin. He who had no sin being made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God he is saying, yes, he's my God, an address of intimacy. And, you know, when we, we use that kind of term, if we, we might say my Susan or my John, if we talk about someone who, who belongs to us, our spouse, uh, we, we might specify them, and, and it's a term of endearment to a degree. Uh, it's affectionate. And biblically, my God is covenantal address. It was the way God said someone could address him if he or she had a personal relationship with him. My God. And you'll notice that it is repeated here. My God, my God. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, uh, but in Jewish culture and in the Hebrew language, when you have a name repeated, it, it, it uh, indicated uh, an intimate expression, a term of endearment. Just to give you a couple of examples, do you remember when David's son Absalom rebels against him? He tries to take the throne from King David and, uh, and he comes and makes war with his own father. But in the end, he, he himself is killed in the conflict and David is heartbroken over it. And he says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That repetition in the language indicates his great love for his son. Or when Jesus was with Mary and Martha, you know, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's doing all the work and Martha's like, come on, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help me with the, with the dishes and so forth and the preparations. And Jesus turns to her with great affection and says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious, anxious and troubled about many things, but Mary has found the one thing needful. And then uh, again in Luke 22, uh, where Peter, Simon Peter says, you know, everybody else might deny you, but I will never deny you. And of course he does. But Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Jesus is giving this, him this warning. But that term of endearment, that double word, Jesus is saying that here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's an, an indication of the intimacy in the persons of the Trinity. Now let's think about being forsaken. If you think about that Trinitarian relationship, which blows our minds because we don't grasp what exactly it means, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, one God in three persons, but we can understand that the Son of God had always been in perfect fellowship with the Father from all eternity. In fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect fellowship from all eternity. Forever. Jesus Christ, who had always been in perfect fellowship with the Father, was now being forsaken by the Father. He is no longer my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the cross, as I said before, as Paul said, he who knew no sin was made sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Pink, he, he, uh, he writes about this. He says, He who hung there on the accursed tree had been from all eternity the object of the Father's love. To employ the language of Proverbs 8, the suffering Savior was the one who was by him as one brought up with him. He was daily his delight. His own joy had been to behold the Father's countenance. The Father's presence had been his home. The Father's bosom his dwelling place. The Father's glory he had shared before ever the world was. During the thirty and three years the Son had been on the earth, he enjoyed unbroken communion with the Father. Never a thought that was out of harmony with the Father's mind. Never a volition but what originated in the Father's will. Never a moment spent out of his conscious presence. What then must it have meant to be forsaken now by the Father? Ah, the hiding of God's face from him was the most bitter ingredient of that cup which the Father had given him to drink. Now, we, we can experience this same kind of thought uh, and feeling on a, on a personal level. It's one thing to be introduced to someone, say at a party, maybe you went to some parties this, this uh, holiday season and you met some people, uh, and then you see them again and they come up to you and say, I don't ever want to see you again, I don't like you, uh, uh, don't call me, don't talk to me, and you go, fine, <laughs> I hardly know you, I don't really care. Uh, and you, you're not much bothered with someone like that. But if your child says that to you, or your spouse says that to you, well, that is a deep, deep pain. Because there's intimacy there. You've known the person for years and years, and you've shared experiences intimate experiences with one another. And for them to come and say, I forsake you, that's excruciating, excruciatingly painful. What must it have been like for Christ, who had never not known fellowship with the Father from all eternity, unencumbered by sin, of course, because they're God, to be at that moment forsaken by his heavenly Father? It must have been excruciating. Jesus, when he cries out then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was experiencing the infinite agony of hell there on the cross. The infinite, infinite agony of our hell on the cross. But of course, Jesus' agony in his separation from the Father would have been infinitely greater than ours because his relationship with the Father was infinitely greater. Now, I've mentioned hell. What is hell? I've heard some people describe it as a place from which God is absent, and that's not very accurate. Hell is a, a place from which God's grace is absent, but his justice and his wrath is present. Hell is a place that every human being deserves because of our sin. Everyone has this innate rebellion against and hostility towards God. And you might think, well, I'm not hostile to God. Uh, I don't have anything against God. I certainly don't hate God. But are you indifferent to God? Now, obviously, y'all are in church this morning, so you're, you have at least some regard for God. God. 
But what about the rest of the week? Are you indifferent to him Monday through Saturday? Do you only call upon him in a crisis? I think that's the testimony of a lot of people in our day and time. Many people today who call themselves Christians are actually adherents of what we would call moralistic therapeutic deism. I've mentioned this before, but moralistic therapeutic deism has become the dominant civil religion of the United States. Now, nobody signs up to become a member of the moralistic therapeutic deist church, but in practice, in the way we think about God and ourselves, it's, it's, uh, it's what many Americans are. Let me explain that to you. Moralistic therapeutic deists uh, believe in a God who's not really particularly involved in their lives. That's the deist part. They try to be a generally good moral person. That's the moralistic part. And they think because they do believe in this God and they are a pretty good person, relatively speaking, that God is obliged to make sure that their, their lives are happy and successful. In fact, they believe that God exists to make their lives easier. And they do not believe, believe that he places any demands on them. He's like this big Santa Claus in the sky. And when things do not go the way they think it should be going, that's when they call on God to fix it. That's the way most people in America believe today. Most people today like that kind of God. I would like that kind of God. Give me exactly what I want and be my footman to, to do my bidding, my butler in the sky to give me everything that I need and want. But a holy God, we don't really want that. A God who would make absolute claims on our lives, we don't really want that either. And many people avoid the absolute claims of Christ by believing in a limited Christ, one that's not so demanding, one that doesn't say things like, if you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. We tend to think of God as either, either gracious or holy. Either he's this gracious God, Santa Claus in the sky, or he's the cosmic killjoy that's out to get us and out, out to make us miserable but not both. If we think of God as totally gracious but not holy, we have created a God for ourselves who does not make demands on us. If we think of a God who is totally holy and not gracious, we think he can be maybe bought off with our good works and therefore cannot make demands on us, which is the way most Pagan religions think of God. You sacrifice to the God, you throw the virgin in the volcano to appease the God, and he'll give you whatever you want, the good crop or the, the blessed life. But the God of the Bible is not only totally holy, but he's also totally gracious. Not only does he demand we submit to his will, but he tells us that we are incapable of it. And it will and we will have to rely completely on his grace. In other words, there's no way to confront the true God and re retain a scrap of self-sovereignty. We have no rights before a God like that. He's so wonderful to us 
and has done so much for us that there's nothing that he cannot ask us. He's given us everything. What do we have that was not a gift from God? And what is, and, and that is what the natural unredeemed heart cannot stand. We cannot stand anything that threatens our self-sovereignty, that I can do what I want to do. What Jesus is, is enduring here in his soul on the cross is the judgment, the wrath that we all deserve. He is going through hell on the cross for us. Now, we need to grasp that and think about that, the implications of that for our lives. Why did he do this? He did it for sinners like us. So we wouldn't have to. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. See, the person that has surrendered his life to this holy, gracious Savior will never be forsaken. Yes, this holy, gracious God will make demands on your life. He, he will take you places that you yourself would not choose to go. He will take you into suffering and trial that no one would want, but he will be with you. When the Lord asks you to go through that trial and suffering, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you. You will fear no evil because he is with you. And, and it's often in those moments uh, of difficulty and trial and suffering that you experience the most intimacy with the Lord because he's walking with you and bearing you up in those difficult times. And I'm sure there are many people here today who are lonely, uh, who are suffering, uh, who are going through trials in their lives, Remember, if you are Christ, you are not alone. You may not sense his presence, but you must trust that because of what Christ has done on the cross, of being utterly abandoned by the Father for that time, that you are not abandoned. You are his. He has you in his hand, even though you may not see it with your own eyes and feel it in your soul. He's with you, and trust him today with that. If you are not a believer today, if you are one of those maybe moralistic, therapeutic deists uh, who has really not really given any regard to God, turn to Him today. Don't be afraid of what He might bring into your life, but rejoice that this life is just a, a brief period, but you will be, He will be with you in that brief period if you turn to Him, and you will be with Him for eternity, never to be forsaken. That's the joy of of those, these words that we have here in the Scriptures, that Christ was forsaken for us, that we would never be forsaken. And that is a, a, a great hope and encouragement and anchor for our souls, especially as we go through difficult times. I pray that everyone would experience that today. And as we come to the table, uh, we can reflect upon what Christ, again, has done for us. As we see his body broken and blood poured out for us and remember Christ and, and how he was forsaken on our part, knowing that never, never will we, he forsake his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the encouragement that it is to us. We thank you for the fact that Christ suffered in our place. Lord, we pray that we would appreciate that all the more every day. And especially as we come to your table now, we pray that once again as the gospel message that we have heard, we experience in tangible ways with the elements there. Pray your blessing upon that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.